as these financial offerings proliferate across a bunch of different software companies, it's, it's not as if as a end customer, I'm going to have 10 bank accounts 10 years from now. It's all about picking your spots. And I think what that generally leads to is those companies and software platforms that are more vertical in nature and know the most about their end customers and solve the most customer problems today on their behalf, probably have the best right to serve them ancillary products and services. Welcome to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, powered by Gusto. On this show, we explore the intersection of fintech, vertical SaaS, and how software combats the rising complexity of running a business. Our goal is to share stories, advice, and best practices from the leaders and investors behind today's cutting-edge platforms. Here's your host, Shamrat Niyogi. On this episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, my guest is Blake Adams, SVP of Bain Capital Tech Opportunities. Blake is SVP in the portfolio group at Bain Capital's Tech Opportunities Fund, where he partners closely with management teams on operational and strategic initiatives. Previously, Blake worked for Google, Intuit, and Boston Consulting Group, and was also an entrepreneur in his past life, having run Clarity Service Group a multi-state behavioral health provider. Blake is based in San Francisco, where he lives with his wife and two kids. Blake, welcome to the show. Thank you, Samrat. That is uh, quite the intro. You said it better than I could have ever done myself, I think. I practiced it a few times, so uh, (laughs) you have an impressive background. You have an impressive background, so I had to make sure I did it exactly the way (laughs) was shared with me. So welcome to the show. By the way, love love your background. Uh, Did you go on a, a bike ride this morning? Good question. I actually did. I got my 20 minutes in, so it's not just a coat hanger. I can't attest it gets uh, a little bit of use, but probably not as much as I would like. But yeah, man, you know, through COVID, we had to get creative. So this is bike room, office, den, serves a number of functions. Well, I, I will say that uh, I need to get get some exercise myself. So maybe you and I can uh, start <laughs> a competition. You're probably going to run circles around me, but um, appreciate you being, being on the show. You have a, an amazing background. I've, I've gotten to know you over the last uh, few years. You know, I always like to start with folks kind of telling us a little about their story and, and you know, how you ultimately got to, to Bain Capital. I would love to maybe you can start there. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, I joined Bain Capital Tech Ops about a year and a half ago, based in San Francisco. You know, I'd say my career has been pretty diverse set of experiences. Started career in, in Boston Consulting Group and Management Consulting. Coming out of business school, I did what's called a search fund where partner and I looked for a business to acquire and then operate. Wound up acquiring a business called Clarity Health Services, which is a behavioral health staffing company based on the East Coast. Ran that for a few years. We had an exit to a, um, to a larger strategic. And, you know, since then has had a host of experiences, taking my hand, going the startup route and went through YC with a lot of wounds and lessons learned through that process. Most recently, it was at Google and then Intuit before joining TechOps. And I'd say like Intuit spent about four years there. And that was like a big reason, frankly, why I do what I do today and, and also why I'm on the podcast. Because while there, and for those that don't know, you know, Intuit has too many businesses. One is con- the consumer group with brands like TurboTax, Mint, and also Credit Karma, which is acquired through an acquisition. The other side is small business focused with the main franchise being QuickBooks. We spent a lot of time in both corporate strategy and strategic partnerships with both those businesses, 
and really just developed a love for SMBs and the softwares that serve them and make their lives easier, makes their jobs more effective, makes them be able to run their business and accomplish their goals. And that's actually what I spent a lot of my time on, or some of my time on, I'd say, today at uh, in Tech Ops in my role as a, as a uh, operating partner. So you're an operating partner. And what does an operating partner actually do? I've seen it sort of emerge in various sort of funds in the last few years. Yeah. Let me actually talk a little bit about Tech Ops, and then I'll, and I'll talk about the role. So Tech Ops is Bain Capital's growth equity fund focused on enterprise software companies, specifically, you know, in areas where we spend a lot of time are application software, healthcare IT, fintech, as well as infra and security, anything series B to sort of pre-IPO. And we really work closely with all our portfolio companies are very deeply engaged, as I'm sure you, you know, from some of our recent discussions and, you know, spend a lot of time empowering, being a thought partner to our management teams in the work that we do. I think the operating partner role for tech ops is an amplification of all those things. So operating partner role generally varies pretty widely from fund to fund, from VC, private equity uh, to growth. But for our team, you know, we have four portfolio group folks, three are generalists of which I'm one of those. We have one that's a head of talent and we work closely with our portfolio companies on everything from sort of setting up a value creation plan, which are the two or three core things we want to focus on as we work with the business over the next five, six, 10 years, and also helping build out management teams and hire and being an amplifier for good where we can as our companies continue to grow and you know have talent needs. Those are areas where we spend a lot of time. And I'd say like, you know, the exec sum on my role is really just a thought partner to leadership teams and you know help where I can to, to work through tough issues or, or make tough decisions. Are you like actively involved in their operating cadence or do you get pulled in in various ways? Like how, how do you engage with the management team of the companies that you are investing in? Yeah, it's a great question. It varies widely. Typically how it works is I'll usually have like a regular cadence with, you know, our company CEOs and generally their leadership team, maybe bi-weekly, maybe monthly, maybe weekly and pulled into some operational cadences when asked or where we can be helpful. Those are typically areas where maybe the company doesn't have specific domain expertise or doesn't have any in-house capabilities. And we can help facilitate either introducing them to sort of vendors or consultants, hire staff that can help fill those voids or just be sort of a sounding board as working through, for instance, like a steer co related to lighting up a new offering or radically changing pricing and packaging. Got it, got it. One of the reasons that I was so excited to bring you on to the show is, you know, you all recently announced this report, which I think is really one of the best reports out there, which I'm sure you could, you can talk a lot about and you probably have some bias around that, but like, I think <laughs> tech leaders should take a look at, which is called embedded finance, what it takes to prosper in the new value chain. Maybe you can tell us a little about this report and, and why were you all compelled to work on something like this? Yeah, and thanks. You know, I think there's been a lot of great thought pieces out there, to be honest. And embedded finance, I think, continues to be a juggernaut of an industry shift, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. But I think as we, being capital, the team sort of looked at, you know, the landscape of content and information out there, it was largely qualitative in nature and just thought there was an opportunity to bring, I think, more of a quantitative aim to really understand like what's the size of this opportunity what's the growth profile how do the economics work across the various stakeholders 
So that's that's really where we thought there was an opportunity and really leaned in heavily to try to sort of quantify and size some of these things. And also, frankly, just speak in a little more detail about our point of view on how the land, the ecosystem and the landscape of power centers would be shifting over time. The term embedded finance, I'm not really sure if it even existed 10 years ago. I mean, maybe yeah. it did. But what is embedded finance? Like, how do you all define embedded finance? And maybe you can talk more about that. So um, funny enough, a uh, partner for Bankcap Ventures called Matt Harris, who's been sort of a fintech legend for a long time now. He, he, we joke internally, has been the man that coined the term via Forbes article way back when. But yeah, it's a good question. When was that article written? I believe it was written in 2015, maybe? All right, so it's a pioneer of the term embedded finance, 2015. Yeah, indeed. But yeah, I would say like it's a good question of what it means. And I, and I think it means slightly different things to different people, I think, as we think about it. It is when a software platform as providing an adjacent financial services to customers with sort of three criteria. First, is this delivered like through an on-platform experience that's native to the customer journey? Second, the platform has some degree of economic ownership of the profits benefited from that offering. So it's not just a referral mechanism. They're actually participating much more meaningfully in the financial upside of delivering that offering to the customer. And then the third is like typically where the magic happens is when the software platform has proprietary data assets about that customer with which they can use to offer a financial product better than just could say a legacy financial institution. So that's sort of like what we look for. And just to sort of bring that home, these offerings are most frequently, at least today, banking, payments, lending, which is what we talk about in the report, but also insurance has a number of embedded finance plays. And we're seeing more and more of these opportunities pop up across compliance, like tax and accounting, and HCM, human capital management, like payroll and benefits. You know, this obviously, you know, Matt sounds like termed the language of embedded finance, but what's happening right now? I mean, I, I know one trend you all shared was that 5% of US financial transactions were done through financial services embedded into software platforms, this embedded yeah. revolution, but this is going to double to 10% in the next few years. And what's driving this change? Why is this happening right now? You know, I think a big part of it is there have been some software platforms recently that have just been created juggernauts of businesses in the embedded finance realm. Like think of your Shopify's, think of your Toast, you know, Intuit, again, where it's where I came from, has a massive embedded finance business as it relates to allowing small business owners to, to get paid on invoices by credit card via their customers. So, you know, I think as, as we think about that, this market evolving from 5% to eventually 10% in 2026, there's a few drivers. First is financial services inherently just continue to come online and move from offline legacy processes to being digitized. Most of that has already happened, but there's still a little room there. Second, I think is just as more and more software platforms really realize their right to win and convert and sell through some of these offerings because they know their customer better than any bank does. They have, as I mentioned earlier, proprietary data. Frankly, they just need to trust and credibility with that customer. We see this continuing to be a dynamic and sort of a, a multi-year, if not multi-decade generational shift. Lastly, I'd say there's a little bit of a vertical maturity. So some verticals like e-commerce, health and wellness, food delivery, have very high penetration of embedded finance. Others like real estate, are still in their infancy, but we see this continuing to be areas where 
certain of those verticals that are less mature now will continue to pick up steam and, and additional adoption and penetration over time. As you're talking, I know that there's a lot of, when people think of embedded finance, they, they, the first thing they think of is like Stripe. But over the last few years, you're seeing a lot more embedded offerings in market. One, you know, I know Stripe's been doing a lot of innovation in this space, but like, why is there so much venture capital starting to be invested in the next embedded XYZ, call it what it is? I mean, you mentioned insurance, you mentioned lending. What's going on here? Yeah, I think, I think the market is just massive. We did a recent study where we basically compared, you compare just the US SaaS market today, it's $107 billion. The US market for just payments and insurance is $450 billion. And you know, I think the thesis and hypothesis that you're seeing from a lot of investors is, hey, across, call it a trillion dollar market of payments, insurance, and bank and lending, if you can even chew off 10%, but frankly, we feel like there's a chance it could be 20 or 30% over the next 10 to 20 years, there's just a ton of market opportunity. So I think, you know, with that as like the overarching thesis, folks have put a lot of money into the enabling category of the ecosystem of those software companies that are navigating between the software platforms and banking and, and regulatory institutions to bring some of these offerings to bear. You mentioned that some markets are maturing at different rates. And you know, I was looking at, you specifically called like retail e-commerce with delivery are adopting at a higher rate. Why do you think certain markets are you know, gravitating towards adopting these types of solutions, specifically the software providers that are serving those markets? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think as you think about embedded finance and like where there's an opportunity with a given sort of company, if you're offering, you know, workflow management services, there's like a set of criteria that suggest a readiness to really have success with an embedded finance offering. And I think it starts with the customer benefit, which very quickly gets to like, what's the attached opportunity? But it's basically, do you have something where you can stand out from how you'd get lending from a chase or a, or a large legacy? financial institution. And, you know, I think the customer benefit can come in three avenues. One, they just like the customer experience. And can you provide a customer experience that's native, that's data rich, that is quicker, more efficient than the customer would be able to get otherwise? You know, second is cost savings. And like, can you offer this offering much lower than others because of, you know, how it ties into your broader platform? Toast is a great example of this. Toast is a point of sale software company that makes the majority of their gross profit and revenue from payments. They make their money on payments and they use that to subsidize their hardware, you know, which they lose money on. And they're able to do that because overall to the customer, they're getting a better deal, but it's because they're getting that payment revenue, which is helping subsidize the, the hardware. And then the third thing is just access and access and risk, which is for a lot of like small business, for instance, it's hard to get a loan. And part of that is because there's not, there's very limited data on these business owners. It's hard for you to walk into a bank and build up a lot of confidence in that relationship if it hasn't already been a multi-year between the, the small business owner and the bank. Uh, software platforms can solve part of that problem because they have access to data. They frankly know more about that small business owner than any bank likely does and can use that to underwrite and extend credit in the uh, example of lending to more a higher percentage of customers in a you know financial institution. You know, whenever I hear about embedded finance, the first thing that people talk about is payments. And, and you know, you mentioned Toast as an example and how much of their gross profit kind of comes from payments. Payments is such a huge revenue driver. 
How do you think about all these other new value-added offerings like lending and insurance and, and some of the other new emerging categories that are, that are coming up? Like in some ways, everything gets compared to embedded finance. Is payments embedded finance? Or do you really think that these other opportunities, these other capabilities that are coming out could be just as meaningful in terms of creating value for the software companies, but ultimately the small businesses as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, I think payments is typically one of the first offerings to land just because I think it's a lot higher on the maturity curve, like the motion and the playbook, so to speak, is pretty clear now and is by far drives the most revenue across the business today. We've sized embedded finance at 21 billion in revenue and payments makes up roughly two thirds of that. That being said, I'd say the growth and the opportunity moving forward is going to be for more and more of these additional products and services to move from sort of legacy FIs to an embedded finance environment. So like lending is pretty high on that list. Insurance is high on that list. Banking has been increasingly big opportunity. We've seen like an onslaught of enablers in that space that are bringing those sort of offerings to bear. And then I think waiting in the wings is sort of comp and benefits and payroll and tax compliance. We're also seeing some interesting plays. So I think as we think about what this market looks like five, 10 years from now, it'll be a much more balanced composition across all these different offerings. So I know that we have a lot of, of listeners that are building solutions to serve small businesses. It's really hard to know when you should sort of jump in. And you mentioned payments is kind of like the first opportunity that most companies sort of consider. Like, What are the conditions yeah. that sort of need to exist to actually explore embedded finance opportunity? You know, I think there's a couple things as we think about is there something here and how do we get conviction around it? And I think like it starts with for payments, for instance, there's a couple questions that we want to ask, like, what do we think the attached opportunity looks like for this platform? And then there's a second questions around what do we think the net revenue economics look like for this platform and this customer? And then there's another piece, which is what are the add-on services that we can use continue to grow the business? And all of these are like informed by a set of micro questions like, What's the payment mix between credit card and other rounds of payment? Like how acute is the customer problem that we're solving? And can we drive a ton of efficiency and customer benefit just on the workflow for payments? This is typically in the form of like reconciliation where I won't have to manually reconcile an invoice with payment with the payment that's received. And it's all sort of automatically done that by the same provider. So I think there's like a set of questions and a framework that you can take to really evaluate some of these opportunities, but it's largely around, you know, one of the big questions is just around adoption and what do you have to believe that suggests you have a right to really win an outside share of your own customers and convince them to go from buying your software to buying your financial services? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as you were chatting, I was wondering, you know, does every software company become, could they actually offer embedded finance? And I'll use banking as a service and i'm going to like extreme examples like salesforce or just you know what you think of classic horizontal software providers do you think that every software company will be getting into embedded finance or do you feel like the right to win is kind of the open question that yeah. every software solution has to ask themselves yeah I, I think more and more companies will try it i think a lot will not be successful and i do think as these financial offerings proliferate across a bunch of different software companies, it's not as if 
as a end customer, I'm going to have 10 bank accounts 10 years from now. It's all about picking your spots. And I think what that generally leads to is those companies and software platforms that are more vertical in nature and know the most about their end customers and solve the most customer problems today on their behalf probably have the best right to serve them ancillary products and services because they know the customer, they've built trust, they have the data. So I think not all software platforms are created equal, but I lean towards those where they have the deepest relationships, where they know the most about their customer, where they have the most proprietary data, and frankly, where they just have a much more, the most compelling better together story between the software that they offer today and the financial services that it could be offering in the future. We have a company called Buildertrend, which is project management software for small residential contractors. Pretty phenomenal business, great set of leaders, and a really compelling, I think, this value prop for a small general contractor to manage their business. Now, that company has started as a software business, but we've also identified a ton of financial problems that we can solve directly related to that core job of project management. So think, you know, as you're a small sort of home renovator, you get paid by the homeowner for small jobs and you have to receive payment. As you're doing your work, you have to actually pay your subcontractors, pay your suppliers and pay your distributors throughout a job. There's also a high bar for insurance that you need to have at all times as a general contractor. And that process is surprisingly paper-based and inefficient. As we work with that business and they've got a phenomenal financial services leader there in place, there's one big focus of the company, which is how do we continue to drive the software business? But more and more, we're thinking very proactively about the financial services strategy and how can we solve all the problems that are facing our general contractors, whether it be software, whether it be financial services in nature. So there's, uh, you know, obviously Builder Trend is, is on the journey of investing in embedded finance and it's like they're well underway. You know, we have some companies listening to this podcast to get their toe. There's others that are really early on their journey and they're and with anything there's the attach and the track you might have is has mixed results like how do you really make your embedded finance investment successful whether you're making your first move or you're kind of already there like what's really 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 important yeah i mean i think i've touched on a little bit of it they're just through the conversation but i'd say like to put a pin on it i think there's a couple of things one is just start with your strength and the workflows and the problems that you solve for the customer today. And then I think it's just using those as your foundation, identify those offerings where you believe you're the best right to win and where you think you can solve problems uniquely well. Again, either because you have some data that no other provider or bank may have, either because you can deliver on a promise of like providing efficiency benefits that no other party can do. But I think that's the core of how do you extend from software to financial offering? The other piece I'd say is like a little more tactical and pragmatic, which is these things take a long time to gestate. So it's a little bit of like building conviction in the strategy, building conviction in the path to get there and being willing to continue to invest and stay the course because it is a big context switch for a customer that may love the software that you offer, but have never had a banking relationship with you or any related party, have never had a payments relationship with you or any related party. I think like to build that trust and get that full context, which takes time. The last piece I'd say is just outside talent. And you had a lot of success with like hiring GMs or product leads 
for companies that maybe don't have those financial services muscles going external and helping seed some of that talent to really get the flywheel going and get that next level of perspective and point of view to really help marry not only the software strategy, but the financial service strategy and how those things come together. Well, I will say that we are firm believers of the strategy that you're outlining and it's really early days. Payments is kind of the first, have demonstrated a lot of success in markets, but I definitely am seeing a lot of these new solutions out there that create some new value, but it's definitely early days in terms of how that value is being realized by those end customers. One of the things that I've been curious about is what's happening with neobanks. Like you mentioned the traditional financial institutions and how they've been offering this plethora of services. What is your take on the dozens of neobank solutions that are kind of coming out that are serving the business banking market today? And they're kind of also, you know, dabbling. You mentioned vertical as like a strong value proposition, but what about these neobanks that are kind of coming into market these days? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the neobank market is evolving quite rapidly. I think there's a lot of volatility in the public markets. I think there's a lot to still shake out there. I suspect there's going to be some big winners, both on the consumer side and the small business side. But I think there's going to be other folks that get consolidated. And frankly, I think it comes down to on the neobanking side, like unit economics and the path to profitability. And I think when you peel back the onion on like different business models and different approaches, there's a pretty high variance in what that looks like from one company to the next. So I think those businesses that I'll continue to be differentiated and build moats over the coming years are going to be those that think they just solve the unit economics problem on the, on the neobank side. And there's probably this other piece of like, over time, do you actually become more and more of a full banking product such that you have sources of capital that are much more cost-effective than many neobanks are doing today? So I suspect folks will continue to vertically integrate, integrate and start to build balance sheets and more directly plug in a regulatory um, entity not to rely on you know, larger bank, other banks' charters you know, to provide their products and services. Well, Blake, I, I, I've certainly learned a lot. And, and I think the report that you all have put together is going to be such a, a value add for anyone that's building solutions for, for small businesses. For folks that are listening, definitely download and read the embedded finance, what it takes to prosper in the new value chain by the Bain Capital team. Thank you so much for for joining us today. Before we wrap up, I'm sure there are a bunch of companies that may want to reach out to you. How can they reach out to you? I'm not sure if you have a, whether social media is, is your thing or whether they can email you directly. How can they reach out to you to discuss deeper on these topics? Folks that are maybe innovating in this space, yeah. finance offerings, or even building solutions for small and medium-sized businesses. Yeah, thanks for asking. I'm ashamed to admit I'm still figuring out Twitter. So fortunately, that's not on my list. But yeah, you, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. And yeah, happy to take emails, badams at baincapital.com. And always excited and thrilled to chat through uh, embedded finance opportunities and strategies and look forward to connecting with your audience. So that's all we have time for today. There will be links to any resources mentioned in today's episode. Thanks again for listening and look out for the next episode. And for Blake, you and I both have to go and get some exercise. So you should probably do that before the weekend. That's a deal. I'll hold you to it. It's been great, Samra. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Blake. Appreciate it. Bye. Thank you for listening to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com. 